Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Seven Investing podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Seven Investing provides our seven top stock market opportunities each and every month. You can get started today for just $1 at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Uh, 2022, the year of the tiger. It's been an interesting year for equity investors. A lot of challenges, but also a lot of opportunities. And we've been looking into where those opportunities exist. They're not all just within America's own domestic borders. And as such, I'm really excited to welcome our guest to the podcast today. Braden Dennis is the host of The Canadian Investor. He's also the CEO of Stratosphere.io, which provides a lot of financial data for publicly traded companies. We're going to take a look at the international picture here today. Braden, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for being a part of our 7 Investing podcast. Simon, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Uh, Brayden, we'll chat about a couple ideas that you know are on your radar right now. We'll talk about different sectors within the Canadian economy in just a moment here as well. But maybe let's start with the macro, right? It seems like every every conversation starts with the macro. Uh, we've seen a lot of macroeconomic challenges. Is any of this influencing your investing style, or what's your approach to investing in the stock market? You know what I always say, Simon, is on the way up, everyone's a stock picker. And on the way down, everyone's a macroeconomic <laughs> expert. And, uh, you know, we're, we've seen that kind of play out real time. And uh, it should be important to recognize that also incentives wise, if you look at financial news media and, and where you, people consume information on a daily basis, the macro picture when things look bad is always going to be the most interesting and the most click-driven incentive structure uh, that that financial news can can find, and so it's always important to start the context there. Especially you know, what, today, I think everyone's information diet is just one of the most important things. And so you're right. Okay, so a lot has changed uh, in just a year, right? You went from a completely different Fed policy uh, 16 ish months ago to aggressive hikes uh, and off the back of what we've seen and why they've acted this way, very persistent high inflation. And so we're paying basically for this COVID hangover that is doesn't just fix itself right away. You can't have that kind of that type of Fed policy and then you know everything's going to be okay. So they have to you know, counteract the decisions that were made two plus years ago. And there we're, we're basically paying for it now. And, and markets move um, with certainty and uncertainty. And when you have a very uncertain interest rate picture, the market does not like that. And so, uh, you know, for the last, let's say 12 to 24 months, as you and I were talking before, it didn't matter what you owned. It it was just it was just great times. And now we've seen really that one price matters a lot. It always did uh, in terms of valuation. Profits definitely matter. Um, and you know, capital allocation matters. Stock based compensation matters. All the things that worked um, historically don't work long term. What works long term when businesses compound free cash flow per share over time. And a lot of those things are not uh, intuitive or reaching the outcome of free cash flow per share. Heavy stock dilution with, with stock-based compensation, limited profits, let alone no gap profits. 
um, and just growth at any cost is, is the regime that we really just shifted out of in the last like eight months. So I'm saying all that with a lot of optimism for great quality businesses that can continue to compound free cash flow per share for a long time to come here. You're given better multiples for you're given a better free cash flow yield on buying those assets today than you were uh, a year ago. And so that should be celebrated for long-term investors, even when the macro picture looks uncertain. It always looks uncertain. It's the world. It's it's human civilization. When has it not uh, looked uncertain? And so I say I say this, setting the stage with uh, more optimism than than not. We we were joking around right before we started recording about the the board apes, the NFTs that were selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Not a lot of cash flows attached to to a lot of those things that were fetching premium prices a year ago. Uh, you you and I share an interest in long term equity investing, right? Like you mentioned, kind of cash flows over time, things like that. Are, is your investing approach changed at all? I guess within these past twelve months, have the rising interest rates and the inflation and everything else that we talk about that is a challenge. Is that impacting where you put money to work right now, or do you think about things any differently? Um, I would say yes and no. I, what I would say is that it just reinforces my beliefs and opinions that I've always had about profitability and, and valuation. Now, I am not immune to kind of what worked in the past, you know, previous regime for whatever we want to call it. Um, you know, I went against some rules and bought expensive stocks, uh, tiny, tiny positions. We're talking about like really small positions. I always weight my conviction uh, to the, the weighting in my own personal portfolio. But, you know, I, I was not immune to some of the mistakes that, that you see people make. Uh, I think a lot of people made a lot of mistakes, including some of the most brilliant, well-known investors that are widely recognized that some of the best in the business, they've been doing it for a really long time. Uh, no one was really kind of immune to that. That being said, people are realizing, hopefully, that price certainly mattered the whole time. It always did. It never didn't. And that real business quality does matter. You can't just grow at any cost. You know, the, the laws of unit economics are not broken by these hyperscaler type companies. And and I'm I'm there. I, I am not trying to buy companies that are not growing. I'm trying to probably in like a Garpy camp, like growth at a reasonable price. But you can't just grow at, at any cost and break the laws of unit economics. That 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 is a notion that was sold by venture capital, like actually the the private markets getting huge mark-to-mark valuations. Um, and and growing and scaling at any cost, some of these have gone public and still burning more cash than ever each quarter. And so I have learned, and I think many investors have learned, that these hyperscalers are not the dream of operating leverage that they were maybe promised to be. And what I mean for the listeners by operating leverage is you have increasing top line, and theoretically, with these technology companies that have a potentially infinite scale with no, with low variable cost, is that the more you grow, there's going to be a bigger gap between the top line and the bottom line, and that's going to ultimately produce operating leverage. And as you scale, that gap gets wider, and you get bigger and bigger profits. Has that happened for these hyperscalers? 
No, not, not even close. Um, and so we've had to ask ourselves some hard questions about those specific companies. Those are great points, uh, Braden. Like you mentioned, you know, a lot of those fast-growing software companies have seen uh, longer sales cycles. It's harder to close deals. And like you said, there was certainly a contraction in their valuation multiples as they realized that it was not always so easy when IT budgets uh, wouldn't allow for, for more and more growth. It sounded like, you know, if I'm hearing your, your investing style correctly, it's growth at a reasonable price. You still like to go after growth and future cash flows, but we still right. should be mindful of valuation, especially right now of all times. Um, you're based in Toronto. You're our northern neighbor up there. It's a little chillier, That's right. but we do look at a lot of the same types of companies. Uh, I'll talk about the individual companies in a minute, but maybe first, can you tell us about the Canadian market? You know, if not sectors that are appealing to Canadian investors, is there a similar Silicon Valley go for the growth mindset up there? Like Toronto is a very tech forward uh, kind of city or, or just kind of more broadly, how do how do investors in Canada like to approach the, the, the stock market and publicly traded equities? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I host a podcast called The Canadian Investor, also with a guy named Simon. So I'm right, I'm right here. He's a French Canadian, so it's more like Simon, but you know, Perfect. you get the you, you get the idea. Um, and it, it's funny because we talk about Canadian stocks every once in a while, but not as often as you'd think. And the reason for that is we're talking about a significantly smaller pool of, of high quality companies. In Canada, we have largely three main sectors. We got energy, materials, and financials. The Canadian banks being in the financials is like such a gigantic piece of the market cap. You know, like if you look at the S&P today, it's like Apple and Microsoft make up like 15%. The banks in Canada make up like 25%, depending on the day, uh, depending on the day you're looking in terms of market cap in, in the index. So what you get is a long list of wonderful compounders that are in oligopolies, like the banks, like the telcos. Those have been exceptional compounders. But, you know, probably... Like how much real, how much room for growth is there really? I'm not sure. Um, and what you have is basically underweight pricing power businesses and underweight scale outside of Canada. As a generalization, that's what I would. That's my knock on the Canadian market. The pros are some really really wonderful companies that do have scale uh, globally that are under-recognized, not as loved by the market. They might not get the same amount of attention. And even better is if they only trade on the TSX, like uh, Amantashan Kushtar, which is the owner of Circle K. I'm sure you, you've seen them all across the States. Mm -hmm. Only trades on the TSX. That's like a $50, $60 billion market cap company that no one talks about. Um Constellation Software is a $45 billion in market cap company. It's a roll-up of vertical market software companies. It's compounded at over 30% annually since its IPO. Um, only trades on the TSX. And so you do get some less crowded, really great compounders in there as well. So it's a bit of some pros and cons. I, I think overall, one mistake that I see a lot is Canadian home bias or any sort of international home bias. Um, you know, if you're an investor in who lives in the UK, 
typically you'll be very overweight UK companies compared to the global equity landscape. Same within Canada, wherever you may be, that home bias persists a lot. And it certainly persists in the people I talk to uh, here, just basically only owning uh, domestic equities. I see this as a big mistake. Where have you wanted to own equities globally so far um, for the last 50 years in the US? Um, and the, the next 50 years, I, I tend to think that it's the U.S. as well, and so I, I do think that there's a opportunity for international investors and Canadian investors to be more globally diversified. And it's never been easier from a cost perspective now than it ever was. So um, there are pros and cons for sure, and there's some common mistakes I see definitely. But uh, I will say that if you look broadly at the competitive landscape, there are a lot of very, very solid wide moat oligopolies that are basically just protected inside of the inside of the border when it comes to the telcos and the banks and, and a few other sectors have been wonderful to own. Very true. Oligopolies, no doubt about it, you know, whether it's Potash of Saskatchewan, you know, the materials right. companies or the giant banks and you know, the telcos you mentioned. Could we talk a little bit more about Toronto specifically? You know, Toronto has been kind of a, a pretty innovative city, right? Uh, if you go back in time to the research and motions and, you know, the, the smartphones and um, then we kind of had the Shopify's and the e-commerce push. And I know in recent years, it's been more more all about artificial intelligence research, you know, the image nets and, and the other things that are kind of going on in the academic level right now. Uh, what, what's the vibe like in Toronto right now? Does it still feel similar to, to San Francisco? Is, is the housing getting completely out of control there? I mean, what's going on in Toronto these days? Well, housing, we could probably have a whole podcast about. And <laughs> and yes, out of control still, even on like, you know, we're seeing home prices on like 30 plus percent drawdowns from from when they were bought at the peak in like October-ish of 2021, which is not normal behavior for these types of assets. But when you have rates zero uh, on overvalued homes, move up to, you know, variable rates going 6% plus, something's got to give, right? Like you, you can't just defy gravity forever, right? Um, so there's that certainly happening. In the technology space, there are a lot of interesting, and I'm talking private here. I run a tech startup today. Uh, we're almost all located in Toronto. You get some interesting dynamics where you have more reasonable salaries for tech talent uh, than in the Bay Area. We're talking about quite significant. Uh, and then, you know, you could be serving up a global audience charging in US dollars and run your business in Canadian dollars. So there's some arbitrage on currency there as well. Uh, there have been really nice uh, grants and incentives for building startups here, like Shred, uh, which is, we don't have to get into it, but a huge tax rebate on talent for, for hiring here in Canada. So there's a long list of reasons to be very excited about building companies here in Toronto and some of the major cities, you know, like Vancouver, Montreal. There's been some wonderful companies come out of there. Um, I do think that it took us a lot longer to come out of that COVID hangover, uh, which because of the policy here, which again, not going to get into because 
you know, my blood might start to boil. Can, uh, can you go high, a, <laughs> a little high level though, at least Braden, without the, the, the blood boiling too much? Can you tell us about kind of the policies that are in place? It might be different uh, in Canada than the U.S. here. Yeah. So you're in Texas, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the... Basically, if I can paint an idea for you, for those who are not familiar with it, is you largely had south of the border, you know, us watching the U.S. completely what I'll call back to normal, even even if it's ish, like not quite the same, but I would say back to normal for well over one year, talking almost two years of us just watching that and going what's the what's the deal here like like and, and this is not supposed this is not me trying to turn this podcast into a covid rant but <laughs> apologies it, that i got us on yeah but. no no worries <laughs> but that's to give you everyone an idea of how much longer it took for you know a, a real recovery in like normal life and small business and the livelihood of the city here in toronto it <laughs> I don't even think it was really felt like a oh, Toronto's normal again until like September and today's December. Like that's how long it was. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of the lay of the land on Toronto today. And I'm not speaking on behalf of, of everyone who lives here in the city, but improving for sure. And there are amazing like programs and the currency arbitrage and the salaries makes it a really good place to build a company. I think um, I am of course biased on that front, but uh, there are a long list of reasons why it's a pretty great place to build a company. I, I did visit Toronto a few times and in a few of the trips back, I actually told myself, I think I could really live in this city. It's a diverse city. It's a progressive city. Were you there in the winter? No, no, I was not. That's which why. Is probably why I say that. Yeah, there was no <laughs> snow on the ground. It was beautiful outside, and I was no, coming you know, from Texas. You know, it was very hot. Exactly. Yeah. You know what? From about May to S- September, I've been all over the world. There's actually no place I'd rather be. Is you know, kind of home uh, from May to September, and then the rest of the year, yeah, a lot of you can kind of just bounce somewhere else. It's a little bit warmer, I think. Uh, that's what a lot of people do here. They're, they're called snowbirds. So they basically, they're here May through September. They enjoy the lakes, the nature. It's it's a really great place to be. And then, uh, you know, as soon as the, the groundhog sees a shadow or whatever, you're out of there. Yeah. Really noted. Uh, Braden, before we talk about some individual companies that are on your radar, uh, just one more question about AI. Since we're, we're talking Toronto, you know, Toronto's a birthplace of so many of these AI startups and things. Uh, we, we saw a lot of them come hot out of the gate. You know, a lot of the, the stuff you were mentioning earlier, we've seen a lot of those stocks selling off 60 or, or 70%. And certainly we're kind of in a more constricted economy right now. We're seeing contraction in the economy. Uh, we know the pendulum is going to swing the other way, though. We know there's going to be money for the taking again at some point in the future, whenever that is. Do, do you think that there is a an oversupply of AI right now? Do you think the companies are going to come back out of this hot, uh, but it's still going to have to weed out a lot of those? Or where do we stand in, in terms of startups plus capital plus AI technology uh, in the world? Being that you got a front row seat of it up there in Toronto. So, well, there's two things happening. Um, one, one thing that I'm seeing a lot, just cause I'm, I'm kind of plugged into the, the entrepreneurial and tech startup space is I'm seeing a ton, a ton of startups coming out of the woodwork 
and probably raising on some silly valuations who are basically just building on the rails of open AI APIs. <laughs> uh, and so no differentiation, um, basically race for marketing on terms of like they're, they're providing a similar service, whether it's like copy for copywriters, like there's a lot of like marketing ones, like, you know, you can write into this, <laughs> into the AI tool and it'll kind of write all your marketing for you. By the way, it's incredible, but they're basically piggybacking on the rails of uh, the API providers that are, you know, the kind of the picks and shovels behind it. So that's one category. Something's got to give there. Eventually they'll, you know, there's going to be some winners and there's going to be lots of consolidation, but some of it will get washed out for sure. Um, and then number two is like the ones that are building the actual infrastructure and the picks and shovels that I was mentioning about, you know, kind of the companies that are supplying that wave of those startups, there's going to be some absolutely mega winners uh, out of there. No doubt. I predict that in 2023, we will have a ridiculous venture capital infused bubble in AI. You know, it was, it was crypto and web three, and then there's going to be this AI and, you know, startups that are using buzzwords like AI, but not really actually doing anything proprietary in terms of actual machine learning in there. So it's going to be a bunch of that, but um, you know, I'm an engineer by, by background, but I'm not a computer engineer. I don't have any expertise in machine learning. So it's going to be really hard for me to kind of decipher what's a winner and not in public markets. Um, but that doesn't mean I can't learn. That's one thing that I really try to do is, is at least have a really good understanding of how the pieces work and how individual businesses work before even thinking about opening a position. Like that's like just basic stuff. I, I think that people have jumped into so many names they don't understand. And then what happens when the market goes the other way is they can't decipher. They have no real conviction on if it was a good business to begin with uh, when the price starts to drive narrative on the downside. So um just knowing something really well. And I'm not there on lots of names that I'd love to be there with. I don't think I'm quite there with artificial intelligence or cybersecurity, uh, two things that I think are obviously going to be massive thematic events over the next 50 years that I'd love to be a part of. But I don't have the base to figure out quite which ones are the winners in cyber. I think probably CrowdStrike and Microsoft are the leaders there, but I can't say that with complete confidence yet. Uh, in three, six months, maybe I will. Um, but that's, that's the level of time I think it requires to really get a foundational level to be able to be an owner of these businesses. Because I'm not looking to be a stock trader. I don't want to be in and out of stuff. I'm looking to buy something that I can be an owner and think like an owner over the next 10, 20, 30 years um, and monitor the thesis because things change all the time. It's a great points, really. You know, when we think about it, kind of there's a saying out there that new technologies or innovation is often overvalued in the short term and undervalued in the long term. Uh, it used to be that if you if you could write that you could code in Python on your resume, you might as well add a zero to whatever you were going to ask for for your salary. And if right. you were an enterprise trying to go public, you know, if you added crypto or blockchain to the description, you could add a couple zeros to your valuation. Uh, certainly, we've seen those contract, but it doesn't mean that they're down and out. It just means that innovation takes time to be understood. Great point about AI potentially being overvalued 
uh, especially in 2021, if not 2022. Uh, we'll and, jump in. And one thing I'll one thing yeah. I'll jump in there is is you don't have to be early to these huge, huge secular winners. Yeah. How many times could you have bought Amazon over the, since it's a public company? How many times could you have bought Apple over its time as a public company? You know, you everyone I knew already had an iPhone in their pocket before Buffett ever entered the Apple position, which you know, dollar for dollar might be the greatest trade of all time. Um, and so you don't have to be right there on the ground level for some of these secular winners. Sure, you're going to get rewarded for for being there earlier. But you still could have made life-changing wealth over time just, you know, not being there first. You've had multiple opportunities and multiple market declines to try to take advantage of of being uh, a shareholder in some of these mega winners too. Yeah, and back to the operating leverage you mentioned, right? Uh, you know, if you were a publicly, I'm sorry, if you were a privately held company that was in the right sectors and you were giving being given a 20, 30 times sales, you know, top line sales uh, to come public in 2021 or 2020, even for that matter, uh, you took it, right? You saw all the IPOs, if not the SPACs and, you know, the private listings and or the um, um, direct listings and everything else that we saw. There's a lot of money that came to the public markets. We have not seen that in the recent years. Companies are kind of gearing back up, figuring out the profit side of the equation, be a little more that's cautious. Right. I think that's good for investors, for all of us in the long term, too. Yeah. I agree. Uh yeah, those companies were given extremely high multiples to to go public, um, and so many of them did smartly. I mean, you, the cost of capital for them became so low, um, and that's why they kept issuing a ton of stock, uh, whether it be SBC or actual, you know, offering more shares on the market. It made sense to right, like it made complete sense from a cost of capital perspective to do so. Uh, the only problem is, is the tide, the tide changed pretty quick um, from when all that happened to where we are now today. So um, there's definitely pros and cons when these companies are subject to public markets. Uh, you know, the, like I said, a lot has changed in the past year. It has been an interesting year indeed. We're going to get into, um, we'll chat about Stratosphere in just a moment. We'll chat about individual company names in just a moment. But I do want to take a, a moment here to uh, to thank our sponsor for the episode today. Let's take a moment to consider the challenging times that we're in. We just mentioned it's been a crazy year out there. But the current economic climate has a lot of people wondering, when will this ever end? We're at record high gas prices, volatility in the market, inflation, and ongoing supply chain disruptions. Luckily, investors like you have Zach's Investment Research which provides in-depth financial data and expert analysis to help more strategic investment decisions be made. The Fed's doing all it can to cool down inflation, and stocks have already started to respond. And when the market is gripped in pessimism, Zacks provides the invaluable resources that investors need to capitalize on volatility and to buy stocks when they're low. They'll also help you spot losers so you know which stocks to avoid or eliminate from your portfolio. Experts know market volatility can unearth great opportunities Current conditions have done just that. So to provide value to our listeners, Zacks is providing the opportunity to download their report, Five Stocks Set to Double, absolutely free and with no obligation. Their experts are revealing the top five stocks with the best chance of gaining 100% or more in the next 12 months. Imagine how that could impact your portfolio or your retirement savings. So fight inflation and download your free report at zacks.com slash seven investing podcast. That's www.zacks.com 
slash seven investing podcast. A great reminder, Braden, that it's been a crazy year, but you know, I also want to chat a little bit about Stratosphere. Uh, that's the company that you are the CEO of, stratosphere.io. I've checked it out. I'm a big fan of your site as well, because it's giving a lot of financial information, but also key performance indicators that aren't just price to earnings or price to sales ratios. Uh, you're looking a lot at what makes these businesses tick. You think that's going to be even more important next year, as, as you mentioned, that it becomes more of a stock picker's market? Yeah, so I'll answer this in, in two ways. Like certainly one, yes, it, it is what makes these businesses tick. And I'll give you an example. Um, so for, for Stratosphere, our we we just closed a seed financing round and we have our monthly investor updates. In my investor updates, I don't provide them a you know PL income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement. It just doesn't mean anything for the business. <laughs> they want to know what's our month monthly recurring revenue, how many users, how many daily active users, what's the like kind of virality looking like, how, how we can measure, you know, you you share it here, you share it there. That's what's gonna actually make my business tick. It's not like, you know, <laughs> uh gap profits and stuff like that. And public companies as big as they are, and I've talked about how important profits are for a lot of these companies, but it is not the derivation of their success. The easiest example to give is Netflix, okay? Netflix, what, had a 37% single day drawdown when their Q2 came out. It was their first ever net churn of subscribers. Um, and there was a lot of impacts on that. There was also the, the Russia factor as well. But it was the first time ever that they actually had net negative subscriber ads during that quarterly period. And the stock got pummeled. And revenue was a 7% year over year for the, for the second quarter up. And so how often is that? Uh, does that happen? And, and of course, there's a mix of guidance that came out on the quarterly report that was saying, yeah, it's going to be a little tougher over the next 12 months, but the long-term story remains. How often do you see a $250 billion in market cap company lose that much value in one single trading day? And it is actually because of that metric, net subscriber ads. And what makes Netflix's business tick? Subscribers. It's it, that's how they continue to grow the business and expand that operating leverage because they spend around seventeen billion dollars on content creation and they think that it can kind of sit there. So as they get more members over time, you get more and more operating leverage from those fixed costs that that they that takes for for um, uh, creating all the content, all the Netflix originals. So there's a perfect example of a business where a metric like net subscriber ads and total premium subscribers for, for Netflix. And then now there's going to be the ad supported users and they all break those down, but gathering them all together is a gigantic pain in the, you know what? And so we've tried to solve that problem by aggregating it in one place and doing it at scale. And so uh, that's, that's our main mission is to, is to gather that stuff. We give everything else out for free um, and, and monetize that because that's why I think we're saving a lot of people time, uh, especially professional money managers who are getting their analysts to you know, spend an entire afternoon to give, give them, you know, AWS's run rate over the past 20 quarters. Uh, you know, we want to, 
we, we want to solve that pain point of looking through PDFs all day. And so we are, our thesis on this is that this is the stuff that really matters uh, for large companies, for small companies, for medium-sized companies, public, private, doesn't matter. These are the metrics that actually move the business uh, more so than any regular income statement. Yeah, perfect. Well, we certainly love saving time. We also like looking out there for publicly traded opportunities. Let's talk about three stocks that are on your radar right now, Braden, and, and bonus points because they're based in Canada. And uh, even more bonus points I'll award to you if you can give me a couple metrics or a couple things that you think we should watch to figure out kind of what makes these businesses tick as well. Uh, first one is, is Constellation Software. This is a company you mentioned earlier in the program, rolling up software companies out there. Yeah, and I should mention... Uh, they're not particularly on my radar because I, I I own this one in, in size. Uh, you know, maybe it's kind of always on my radar because it's <laughs> such a gigantic piece of my uh, personal public portfolio. Uh, but yeah, Constellation Software is a Toronto-based roll-up of vertical market software companies. It is not a small company. It is well over $40 billion in market cap today. So we're talking about a large cap company. But Many people have not heard of it unless you're in the small corner of Twitter that is obsessed with it um, because it only trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And so, uh, you know, for better or for worse, that's the way that they've done it. They've always been very against a US listing, a dual listing. Like many large companies of that size will have a dual listing. They'll have it on the TSX and on the New York Stock Exchange, for example. Um, and the reason businesses will do that is access to more investors and more capital, but they would prefer to have it less well-known. And the reason for that is their bonus and structure for management and the people who are doing these acquisitions and the M&A and all the operating groups, their bonus is actually tied to, they have to use it to buy shares on the public market. And so it is a, Beyond unique uh, incentive structure that is not common. You won't see this very often. And uh, so that's one of the reasons that Mark Leonard, the, the founder and CEO, has hinted on uh, only listing on the TSX. Now, what does the business do? It's about 800-ish vertical market software companies. Very niche, what are called VMS, vertical market software companies. And we're talking about mission critical, extremely boring not growing extremely fast, but serve a very niche customer set and ultimately very sticky. That's kind of the main goal. They've pivoted their goal to a little bit more organic growth uh, instead of net churn. But overall, these are value buyers. They're not buying the hot AI tech company you, you and I were talking about. They're buying boring payroll software for gymnastics clubs, like not sexy at all. But they think that there's over 40,000 of them that they can roll up. Um, and so the opportunity for them to continue to do that is, is there. How do you manage that many companies? Well, they have six unique operating groups that are managing a set of companies that are also operating groups. So you'll have the mothership, the operating group, which is one of six, and then they might manage multiple companies that just do M&A, all the way down to the actual business unit of this niche, very niche company. And that's really the only way to 
to do it is you need an octopus in all these different, like their tentacles in all these different markets in different languages in different regions and in different industries. It's the only way to do it at scale. And they've figured out how to keep scaling it, not just like keep going with, you know, the status quo, but actually accelerate and ramp up the amount of M&A activity that they're doing. And some of the companies they're buying are tiny, like really small, like, Four, I think they had a 440,000 annual run rate company that they bought like two quarters ago, mm-hmm. like less than a million in sales, uh, the types of companies that they're buying. So it's a, it's a very unique strategy. Uh, they've been experimenting with bigger acquisitions, carve outs, spin outs. And you can't talk about them without talking about Mark Leonard, who is a gigantic unit of a man with this huge beard. And there are only two photos of him on Google. He is a very unique human being uh, and should be on uh, more people's radars as one of the best capital allocators that exist today. Yeah, fantastic. When you're talking mergers and acquisitions, it's all about the process. Great one, Constellation Software. Let's talk about another asset manager. This one's a, more of a physical asset. So this Brookfield Asset Management changed names, changed ticker recently here. What's going on with this one, Braden? Now, about every, it seems like every quarter, we have one of these moments where it's like, how many tickers do they have? Which <laughs> one did they just spin out, take public, take private? Like, it is this black box of financial wizardry. And it is, for the most part, if I was going to the name today, I would be like, I cannot possibly understand this complex structure. There's so many operating groups. There are, some of them are publicly listed. Some of them aren't. Some of them they bought back last year. They're spinning this one out this morning, like as of recording today, it's changing tickers. And you're like, I'm so done with this. And I would also be so done with it if Bruce Flat, the guy who's been managing it for over 20 years now, has not successfully compounded the business at over 17% CAGR and they operate real businesses, uh, sorry, real assets. And when I say real assets, I just mean like real estate, utilities, infrastructure, highways, toll roads, uh, pipelines. These are the types of businesses that they own, buy, and also operate, as well as raise large pools of money for investors to get access to these types of assets because they're alternative assets. They're harder to get access to than if I go buy the public security. And so they have done some excellent things through the years. And now they have now spun off the asset manager as a pure play business because they've noticed that the asset management business, their competitors of these alternatives have been given higher premiums than they think that they had the premium inside of the black box has been given. And so they're willing to do the, this kind of stuff if it's going to unlock short, medium term, long term value. Um, they're very incentivized to make shareholder returns great like extremely incentivized. They own a ton of the company and and the management team. Uh, And overall, they have a unique scale advantage because they're raising capital for these assets, but also operating them, which is not a unique, uh, sorry, not a uh, very common thing. It is unique in the way that they, they raise capital and operate these assets. So 
it's a management team that demands respect, demands a gravitational pull um, through time. And uh, it's also dual listed as well. Yep. 17% compounded growth. That's fantastic over long periods of time, like you mentioned. And then last but not least, let's talk about the sexiest company on the program here. We're, we're not talking about unsexy companies. I want to go back to the sexy ones here. That's Shopify. Uh, this is one that kind of embraced software to help e-commerce, you know, help com- help retailers get uh, established on the internet and have an online presence. What can you tell us about this one? This is one that sold off a lot the last year. Sold off a lot uh, and has come back quite a lot mm-hmm. as well, which deserves some some note because um, it has really rallied quite well. And this goes down to what matters, like what makes the business actually tick. And Shopify saw a huge drawdown because it was trading at absurd valuations. I will be the first to tell you that it made absolutely no sense where the price was trading. But today, is that as true? Sure, it's still a frothy premium that you're paying, but the stock is down tremendously. And during that time, over the last 10 years, you've had subscription solution revenue, because this is stuff we track on stratosphere.io, of 38.3 million to one, almost one and a half billion over the last 12 months. Um, merchant solutions revenue has gone from 3.8 billion uh, trailing 12 months from just 12 million. <laughs> It's like 10 years ago. Like we're talking about hyperscale growth. They've spun up this business of payments volume, which is now doing like a hundred billion in payments volume, uh, gross merchandise volume. We're talking about a hundred and ninety billion. Like the the scale of this business is remarkable. 107 million on monthly recurring revenue from just 3.8 10 years ago. So Harley, Toby, the management team out of Ottawa, where they started this business, the, the capital of Canada, has really done something exceptional in terms of being a category leader in an important emerging industry, which is, I want to sell something online. Who's the name in town to do it? There are all they have competitors. It's not it's not competitor free, but if you want to run the best e-commerce platform. They have the brand trust and the ecosystem and the plugins to make their merchants have the best shot of success. It's too big a risk to not use Shopify uh, if you want to do this e-commerce builder. And so, uh, you know, real category leader in e-commerce, stock got too expensive, saw a huge, huge, massive drawdown. But the business is still executing. And if you're tracking just a list of key performance indicators, like say gross merchandise volume, monthly recurring revenue, and the subscription solution uh, and the merchant solutions, the four metrics, you could even go down to maybe just gross merchandise volume if you wanted to. That has performed far well and above anyone's expectations. And so it should be rewarded. And it has been, even though we've had this massive drawdown, you zoom out and it has lapped the market many, many times over. Um, And we're talking about phenomenal entrepreneurs, kind of an accident story from trying to build a store to sell snowboards way back when from, from Toby's original founding story to now this giant public company that is known and loved all around the world now today. So it goes back to what we were talking about before, where Price drives narrative quite a lot, but if you focus on like the real business fundamentals, often there's a different story and long-term 
return decomposition is from business performance, not from multiples as much. You know, as you go further, further out the scale, you got like really short term, you have almost all of the performance on sentiment and multiples moving around and macro, pretty much every, and it goes less and less and less and more towards business performance on this side of the scale as you go longer and longer down the time horizon. And so what's the point of focusing over here? What's the point of focusing over there if it's completely out of your control? It has no resemblance of your ability to analyze businesses. And long-term is what you're trying to do to compound your wealth over time anyways. So worrying on this side of this of that scale just makes no sense to me. Uh, me either, actually. You know, we, we, there, there's the Boston Consulting Group that puts out the Value Creators Index, you know, in the report that tracks long-term performance. And like you mentioned, it's about business fundamental performance and top-line revenue growth over 10-year periods. The valuation multiples, they wash away. They can be hot one year and not as hot the next year. But uh, fundamentals endure over long periods of time. I certainly agree. And my goodness, it is so refreshing to chat with you, Braden, about long-term investing and uh, and the fundamentals. You know, a couple of companies for for people that wanted to follow along these Canadian companies with great fundamentals. Mentioned Constellation Software. That is CSU.to is the ticker for that. Uh, Brookfield Asset Management. I believe is it be in now, Braden? Is that the new ticker as of this morning? Is that right? As of this morning, Brookfield Corporation is now BN and what used to be BAM is now its own ticker for the asset management business. I know it's a lot to wrap it up. Right. Making sure. I'm yeah. E- right. Even shareholders is a struggle. Like, don't worry if you're listening, you've never heard of this company before. Even shareholders have to every once in a while, check in on the structure of all the public tickers. So don't worry. Brookfield, Brookfield now be in for Brookfield Corporation. Of course, Shopify, I got that one right. That's S-H-O-P for Shopify right. if you're looking for three for your radar. Once again, Braden Dennis, you know, is the host of the Canadian Investor, also the CEO of Stratosphere.io. It's a, a business that, a website that I use personally. I've been a big fan of it. Uh, Braden, really fan of your work. Thanks for uh, being a part of our seven investing podcast here today, talking about long-term investing. Thanks so much. And I should add disclosure, I own all three of those tickers that were mentioned um, I've owned all of them for a very long time. Uh, and so you cannot borrow my conviction and that's why this should only ever be the start of, of, of research and, uh, digging into the business. Thank you so much for having me, man. This is, this has been really fun. Absolutely. And thanks everybody for tuning into this edition of our seven investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. You can learn more at seveninvesting.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. Hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you next time. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.